Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast on the Psalms. We're so glad to have you here with us. My name is Cameron. I'm a secondary mathematics teacher down here in Launceston, Tasmania, Australia. Yeah, g'day everybody. My name's Ken. Uh, I work in the courts uh, in Launceston again, down here in Tasmania. Uh, hello everyone, this is Luke. I'm still a bit annoyed that I missed last week's episode, but I'm very glad to be back again uh, talking from Hong Kong. And I'm Lachlan from Sydney in New South Wales, and I'm looking forward to this conversation, but I do have to open with an apology. In the last episode, I suggested that we look at a psalm that examines imagery of the creation account. And by doing this, we actually overlap this week for probably the first time in this podcast with the topic of the Adventist lesson pamphlet for this week's discussion. But unfortunately, I misstated the name of the psalm. I said Psalm 108, but in fact, what we have to look at today is Psalm 104. So I'm very sorry for sending you barking up the wrong path, and uh, I ask you to return now to Psalm 104 with us, and I humble myself profusely, and I am sure that um, with suitable research, we can make sure this mistake doesn't happen again. We can perhaps do Psalms 108 next week. Well, we can certainly find time to fit it in. But before we turn to Psalm 104, let's just open with a short prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you. Uh, We love you. We love your word. We love the passion, the feeling, the power, and the intrigue of the Psalms. And in this particular one, uh, we turn our eyes towards you and the amazing universe and world that we live in. Bless us and join us on this discussion. Amen. 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 We'll start by reading through the psalm. Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers. Flames of fire, his servants. Uh, This is the NRSV. You set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they flee. At the sound of your thunder they take flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys, they flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. The moon marks off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night. And all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lion 
roars for their prey. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. People go out to their work and to their labour until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there. Living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. I have a very significant concern. Um, and my significant concern is this psalm is 35 verses and we've not been able to limit our discussion to a short time frame <laughs> in respect of much sort of psalms. I fear that we won't be able to do it with this one even more. That means, Ken, we will just be even more dependent upon the the you know flood of suggestions and ideas and commentary that we'd like to receive from our listeners who doubtless will think of so many things that we've forgotten to say um, <laughs> with, with a sound that's so, so dense and so rich. And just to remind everyone, if you do have an idea that you'd like to send in, uh, a commentary on our discussion or on the psalm, uh, a suggestion, uh, a new idea, uh, even ideas for, for future episodes, don't hesitate to email us. You can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Let's start um, with this psalm, perhaps. A brief survey. What verses can you see that do bring out this imagery that you referred to, Locke, um, from the creation account? Well, there's very obvious reference to the mountains rising up. Uh, so there's, uh, in verse 5, earth set on its foundations. It's covered with the deep as a garment. That's very reminiscent of God being on the surface of the deep at the start of Genesis. Um, so, at your rebuke they fled, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. This is very similar, in my mind, to the kind of imagery described in Genesis where the waters are separated to make dry land and the waters are separated up into the firmament to, to create this, this space in which birds dwell and slightly troublingly stars are placed also. It is certainly the case that this psalm buys into some of that imagery from the creation account, particularly with its reference to the waters above. Um, so in the original creation account, the, the firmament, there's waters above the firmament. Um, it, it separates the waters above from the waters below. The birds fly across it and the stars are set in it. Mm. Um, and this psalm seems to buy into some of that imagery, what, whatever we choose to make of it. This psalm is less concerned, it seems to me. The imagery drawn here is much more earth-bound and a bit less... 
a bit less focused on the broader picture of the cosmos. There is reference to heavenly bodies in verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. Uh, And then in verse 22, when the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Those are the animals of the night. So there's reference, um, and a little bit similar to the way the story is written in Genesis, where the heavenly objects, the sun and the moon and the stars, are actually described in such a way as to minimize them as objects of potential worship. So remember, many of the... They're not given names. No, they're not given names, and they're not given huge prominence. Their role is clearly defined as, as... basically helping to to mark the times and the seasons from days out to seasons and years. So that's alluded to here in this Psalm 104 as well. There are other references back to uh, Genesis, at least, and in particular, verse 23, the people go out to their work and to their labor uh, until the evening. And uh, in Genesis, um, uh, the first humans were given their work to do. Uh, and uh, there's also uh, a reference to uh, a Uh, verse 14, plants for people to use. And again, in Genesis, my recollection is that there's uh, uh, reference to uh, the food uh, that's being given. And indeed, um, one goes even from Genesis, then looking for Christ in the Bible, wherever it is, he said that uh, he uh, was the bread of life. This is my body. So there we are. We've got, we've got references all over the scripture, but including to Genesis. One of the great themes in Genesis is the fact that uh, creation is a process with intent and it's obviously clearly thought out. As opposed to the contemporary creation accounts that um, ancient readers would have been familiar with, where creation, you know, there's some battle between the gods and it all happens by accident. One of the gods is slain and he lays down and his body becomes the earth or, you know, and, and there's there's no particular intent uh, behind it. But it is it is noticeable that in the creation account, God's creation is, is effortless. He, he just speaks and it happens. Uh, yes, I'm not so sure. Um, uh, I, I often wonder uh, whether or not that that is actually effortless. Uh, and you can see it from the way that I pause right there now. Selecting the right word to do the right thing is not an easy task. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, but not requiring effort in the sense of, um, in the sense of, you know, ancient deities striving with each other and slaughtering each other left, right and centre or Prometheus having to steal fire to provide for humanity and then being chained to a rock forevermore and having his liver torn out every day. Um, uh, God is very much in control of this process. Mm -hmm. Except that it gets out of his control. Um, And uh, that's where the cross comes in, I think. Uh, So not easy there either. I'm struck by a couple of things Um, in Psalm 104. It seems to be a slightly more tangible a little bit more personable use of this of this imagery that we're familiar with from genesis but is being is being used so instead of it just being animals of the land there's there's some detail given to the to the lions of of the night and the um uh, the there's some more de- de- you know high mountain goats and in verse 18 here um the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers I have to admit, 
I am not an expert on rock badges. And just in the last two minutes while you were talking, Cam, I jumped onto Google and looked up the rock badger. A pretty cute looking little animal, to be honest. Um, somewhere more like a, a marmot or a rabbit uh, in, in appearance. So I encourage any listeners who have similar curiosities, go and look for rock badges on, on the internet. Who knows? There may even be fascinating video footage of them on YouTube. But it's that it's that presence of those details, some of those finer details that gives this, this Psalm 104 quite a different tone in my ears from the account in Genesis that we're quite familiar with. It's it's connected to the author and and grounded in the physical world to an extent that I'm finding I'm feeling a little bit more solid than Genesis one is so is so beautiful, but it's also sort of broad and general. It doesn't drop down to listing off specific examples of animals. There's a wonderful imagery here, isn't there? You you really get the, the, the detailed picture. In fact, one of the other details that I just particularly delight in is verse 26. Uh, and Leviathan, that you formed to sport in it, or which you formed to frolic there. Um, so much of what we do uh, as Christians uh, seems to carry this serious and weighty uh, element to it. We're doing the work of God. We're saving souls. Um, uh, we're you know, bound for the kingdom and we want to bring as many as we can with us. And of course, that's serious work. But God had a bit of a play um, with Leviathan uh, in the, uh, and he formed it specifically for the purpose of having a good time. Mm. Uh, one might rather controversially look and say, uh, as he did a little earlier um, with the uh, wine that gladdens the heart of man. <laughs> We've always been a bit uncertain about God's playful nature. And let's not um, limit it to playfulness. Let's say his capacity for creativity. Uh, some of the early biologists who identified the reproductive mechanisms of plants and flowers and how, how the genetic material is transferred observed that many flowers contain um, contain both the 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 receptive and the transmitting end the the male and the female as it were in one flower and these scientists were denounced from the pulpit the the god would never allow such a thing but we have much more extravagant versions of of um, you know innovative problem solving it really is into the to the process of 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 life continuing i mean there's there's so much diversity in the natural world uh, there's so much that seems outrageous until you realize that's the way it is and you know the world is just a constant source of of amazement and and bemusement and you know sometimes hilarity well speaking of hilarity i note with a very serious caution that verse 15 here warns me that i have been using olive oil all wrong my entire life. Note, it is not for the frying of potato chips. It is to make your face shine. That's what the ESV says. And in the in the New Living Translation, um, it's oil, olive oil to soothe their skin. So I have a feeling that someone needs to take this message more broad from the pulpit. Olive oil is for the face. And do you have any uh, other clever, 
any any other clever comments about about what wine is for, Lachlan? <laughs> well, you notice that you notice it's not for sustenance, because the bread sustains his heart, but the wine gladdens his heart. So it's 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 for recreational purposes. <laughs> oh dear. Well, following this this line of of pedanticness, just just a little bit more fruitfully. I noticed something fascinating going on here. The author is switching between second person and third person, even right from the very start. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then the very next verse, O Lord, my God, you are very great. And then you are clothed. But pretty quickly, it's he lays down the beams of his chambers and he makes his messengers winds. Um so you'd almost wonder maybe they've maybe switched, but no, the author comes back in verse nine in the ESV. It's back to a, a second person. You, um, you make the springs gush forth in the valleys and, and there's a, a couple of them in a row, but then it's by the time you're at verse 19, it's back to he, um, there doesn't have to be any, any particular meaning in this, but I'm just wondering, it, it strikes me as being an unusual, uh, literary device whether intended or, or accidental uh, on the one hand maybe it just speaks to the effervescent bubbling outpouring of joy in in the natural world that the author is just is just bubbling over and is not actually paying much attention to keeping track of the formal grammatical address uh, <laughs> and the voice that he's it does, chosen it does make it sound more more spontaneous there's another element of of the creation account which is mentioned in this psalm, and that is Genesis 3 gets a look in as well uh, with, with references to the fall. And I'm thinking of the closing verses, uh, verse 33 onwards. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord, but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. And, you know, I'm thinking to back to God's statement to Adam and Eve, although if you read... The creation account, of course, in, in Genesis chapter 1, God, I don't think, does address Adam or Eve about the, the tree of good and evil. That turns up in Genesis chapter 2. And in point of fact, God only addresses Adam. Presumably, Adam was given the responsibility of passing the message on, and like many husbands, he might have forgotten. <laughs> uh, there is this idea that, you know, you take the fruit, and, and eating of it, you will die, or dying, you will die. That that very instant, you will you'll die. There's a reference to, you know, may what I do be pleasing to you, but may the sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. And we've commented before, and it's probably worth airing again, to someone familiar with the New Testament, this sentiment is a bit uncomfortable, the idea that David so clearly sees himself as, as one of the righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. Picking up your, your thread there, Cam, of Genesis 3, uh, just a few verses earlier here in, in verse 29 of Psalm 104, after talking about all of the ways in which God provides sustenance uh, and gives them food in due season, when we get to verse 29, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Again, all of that same sort of imagery of death returning to dust, dust to dust, picking up on the idea of being formed from the ground, from, from those stories in Genesis. And... And so it's all it's all layered here. It's a little bit scrambled together here in Psalm 104. I don't have a great answer as to how we can approach this idea of David being so sure he's not one of the sinners. Well, 
I, I was I didn't have an insight on that, but I'm I'm very glad you brought up the the verse twenty seven to verse thirty section, because that's the one that struck me on our reading through of this, for the reason which you've alluded to, which is that it does have that 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 creation imagery, but what it's talking about in this section is an ongoing process which I think is very interesting, and I don't know if it's repeated anywhere else in the Bible, um, but the idea that creation is not something which God did once a long time ago, and that's it. Creation is something which God is doing constantly, all the time, and you renew the face of the earth, you know. Um, the language is used in the creation account, but it's used again here to talk about you know, animals and people dying and being born and, and having food and having comfort and security in life and losing the comfort and security in life um, as an ongoing process. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And it did make me wonder, you know, this concept of creation we have as this process that took place and then stopped is a very mechanistic, it's a very mechanistic, it's a very industrial era way of thinking right it rolls off the production line and then it's done exactly it's a way of thinking for people who grew up with the concept of factories firmly entrenched in their minds it's very interesting that you say that luke because i have had a number of conversations with people who have been startled when i make the claim that even in genesis uh at the end of the creation week creation is not finished and they say but surely it is it has to be because god rests and and in a sense, yes. But recall, even in Genesis 1, when God creates the plants and the animals and the humans, he instructs them to multiply and fill the earth, which to me is only sensible if the earth is not yet filled. And so there is a sense in which creation is not finished at the end of that first week in Genesis 1. Creation has been started, but that ongoing process is anticipated explicitly in the instruction of blessing that God gives to living things. Uh, it's certainly true that the psalmist is not praising God for a historical event in the past principally. He's praising God for the, for the process of life that he sees around him. To him, the creation account is something that is applicable in a, in a very immediate sense. Uh, we talked earlier about the imagery in the text. And, of course, one reason why um, David can indulge with references to rock badges and much more ev evocative language than in the original account is that it's almost certain the original account was first written down. Scholars think perhaps by Moses or certainly someone around that era, um, from an oral tradition. And stories from oral traditions are pared down to their bare essentials because they have to be memorable and um, easy to recite and, if possible, formulaic because it, it, that helps um, stop errors in reproduction as the story is passed down from century to century. And, of course, David is lucky, lucky enough to live in a, in a culture that's that's not an oral culture, or at least his, his court wouldn't have been an oral culture. There would have been many people there who could read and write. Uh, so he can then sort of indulge in some stuff in more detail. I have, I have a little challenge on, on that note um, for our readers, like everyone to go back and read Genesis and observe that God does not bless Mondays. 
<laughs> he says that every day is good except for the second day and I think I'd like to hear from people about what they what they make of that. A person I spoke with recently had made the observation that very early on in scholarship, uh, the Jewish tradition chose not to dwell on trying to uh, identify which of the aspects of the creation account were historical is not the word I want. Uh, chose not to dwell on, on on the historicity of the account but instead to, to focus on its application to our lives. This is not that they took a particular stand on the historicity of the creation account, it's that they decided not to raise the question as one of primary importance. And that The thing of primary importance is obviously that this is an inspired story designed to tell us truths. What truths are spelled out very clearly in the original creation account, which you can also see in this psalm? I think that's a very good question, Cam. Um... And uh, it's that God is behind it uh, and uh, continues uh, to provide and sustain it. Yeah, and there's a, there's a sense of absolutely, I mean, I used the word effervescent earlier um, just a few minutes ago, but there's this sense of literally bubbling over joy about it. Ken, you talked about the playfulness of Leviathan here in verse 26. But in verse 31, may the Lord rejoice in his works. There's there's explicit sort of reason for joy. I think one of the things that unfortunately our traditional Christian approach to the creation as a doctrine rather than as a as a sort of meditation on God's goodness and power, uh, as a doctrine, it's of course creation and the fall. And so creation is a thing of, of wonder, but it's immediately connected to this idea that everything that we see and observe is tainted and not, not up to God's you know, intention, and it's falling short, and it's, as was prayed um, in, a, in a prayer in my church recently, it's, it's riddled with sin. What we see here in Psalm 104 is acknowledging all of that, and, and right at the end in the last verse, let the sinners... Um, be consumed from the earth and wicked be no more. There's an acknowledgement that the things aren't perfect. Things aren't, aren't at their very best. But nevertheless, God can rejoice in his works. Uh, the glory of the Lord endures forever in the, in the observation of this natural world. So there's a positivity, there's a joy, um, a, a sort of passion that I hear coming out of this psalm. And I think that's something that would be quite valuable for us to take also from the Genesis account. It's not just a passion on our part, though. God is not apathetic about creation. He's really involved in it. It's, it's not just the Psalms that's rejoicing. It's the Lord who's rejoicing. Mm. And, of course, that's something that, that picks up in the original creation account. God looked and, and saw that it was good. God, God enjoyed making us, making the world. And that is, is something that, influences that informs a worldview which is very grounding yeah um just picking up on one thing that you said cam about the the oral cultures versus written cultures what i sense here in psalm 104 is someone writing a psalm of praise and of joy from a context where they are well steeped in and almost certainly have memorized certain elements of the oral tradition that we read in Genesis 
one, two, and three, perhaps. And what they're mm. doing is they're they're almost um, improvising on that. They have all of those images loaded into their brain because probably since childhood they've been speaking them regularly and memorizing them as part of this cultural tradition. And those word patterns are what they're drawing on. They're not quoting it word for word here. They're saying something that's their own thoughts, their, their own take on this. It's a prayer, it's a praise, it's a song, but it's also heavily drawing on some of those imagery. So I, I almost see here in Psalm 104 a a confirmation of your of your statement that you know the creation stories are are initially oral traditions. Can I raise something with uh, a mathematician and a physicist? Uh, and Luke, uh, a, um, an ADRA director, um, I, I wanted to look at this um, verse 2. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. I, I think of uh, the theory of relativity, which it is the special or the general one I never can remember, um, uh, but the speed of light um, as being a limiting factor in the universe. Um, and that limiting factor that we uh, experience here uh, uh, is simply the outer garment uh, of that God wraps himself in, uh, that God clothes himself in. Um, any thoughts about that? It would suggest that God's very heavy. Uh, <laughs> okay, because, yes, yes. <laughs> because light does bend as it travels past heavy objects. Um <laughs> Well, that's that's not quite true. Um, the space that light is travelling through bends. Um, so, so are you suggesting? Are you suggesting that black holes in the universe are just God's dandruff? <laughs> I think so. I think so. If if something uh, is is cloaked in light, it would be invisible uh, because the light would be wrapped around it, um, and you only see things when light reflects off them. Yeah, hmm. I think I mean the theological point being made here is the same as creation. The original count separates light from the sun and associates it instead with God. And it is true that from observation alone, it's not the case that it's obvious that all the light we enjoy on Earth comes from the sun, because the sky gets light before the sun's visible. The sun is obviously a, a source of light in the sense that it casts a shadow, but you can go out there in the morning and the sun's not up and it's, it's, it's light half an hour before the sun comes up. So this idea of, of the sun ruling the day, having a job to do, but not, not as a source, you don't worship the sun. The sun has a part to play in the phenomena of light, but light itself is from God, mm. which is particularly amongst the cultures that the ancient Hebrews would have been in for instance, in Egypt, where, where the sun god was the principal deity. That's a really important distinction to make. Well, I'd like to just pick up that idea about, about distinction with, say, Egyptian ideas. But before I do so, can just completing that answer in a, in a theological trajectory, of course, the Gospel of John starts with a sort of poetic reference that picks up on imagery of the creation account from Genesis. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. And by the time you get to verse 5 of John chapter 1, 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And so the the theme of light is being pulled out there in the introduction of Jesus Christ as the character that transforms human history by being God's revelation of himself to us. This speaks to Luke's comment that in verse 30, the psalmist praises God for renewing the earth. It's certainly the case that as the Genesis account develops, uh, God is not only the original creator, but he is the recreator. The whole story of the flood is a story of recreation. It sort of sets, it sets the mode of God's response to sin. The, the world is in a sense uncreated, returned to chaos as the result of, of people's choices. Certainly moral chaos is, is how Genesis 6 starts. And of course, God responds to this by remodeling creation. Waters cover the deep again. God intervenes and the waters recede. There's a whole bunch of patterns, uh, like, for instance, the animals are blessed and told to multiply, and so are the people, and people are given food. This time there's a slight adjustment to the food, but it's a very similar phrasing. The Genesis account uh, is not just about creation. It's about the creation and the fall and then the recreation, and that is, of course, you know, comes to fruition in the person of Christ. Well, I like what you've what you've said there, Cam, and also p- returning to verse thirty, Luke, where you drew our attention to this renewing the face of the ground. Something jumped out at me there when you focused my attention on it, and maybe this is informed by the couple of years that I spent living in Germany, where the visibility of the seasons are so much more prominent with a, a geography and a climate that experiences the loss of leaves from the forest and snowfall in the winter. But if you read verses 27 to 30, giving food to all of these things in due season, uh, when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And then verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. And what I'm seeing there is this layering where on the one hand it is imagery, really beautiful imagery of creation and recreation. And on the other hand, it's it's just a very obvious experience of the world where through the yearly cycle, things grow up, plants, crops grow up, um, livestock have young, and there is a growing up and a thriving. And then in the, in the autumn time, there is a taking away of the breath of God and are dying and are returning to dust. And then when you send forth your spirit, they are created and renewed. And I'm reminded of a conversation we had on this podcast just a few episodes ago about the blurring of the divide between the natural and the supernatural. And whereas we tend to find that to be an important distinction to make, it seems totally plausible that the author here in Psalm 104 is commenting on a yearly cycle, but also observing the important involvement of God in this regular recreation. But also, by the time at the end of the psalm here, let sin be no more uh, consumed from the earth. They're also looking forward to a sort of fulfillment of this annual recreation in a much grander recreation. Your comment about the involvement of God's Spirit adds an, an, an extra uh, allusion to the creation account and and also to the flood account because in the original creation it is god's spirit hovering over the waters 
that's the prelude to the creative act. Mm. That chaos covers the deep and God sends his spirit to hover over the waters. And of course, in the flood account, it says God sent a wind, but it's the same Hebrew word as spirit. Uh, God sent his spirit to hover over the waters again uh, with Noah, and he renewed the face of the earth. Mm. You know, there's allusions here to God pouring out his spirit, which is which is a theme, and uh, it's one of the minor prophets. What's the one about in the latter days, God will pour out his spirit, and the, the young people will see visions, and the old men will dream dreams, and uh, talking about great revival as a result of God sending his spirit, which is, you know, fulfilled in, in part, obviously, in the events of the New Testament church, this idea of God's spirit being the principal motive force for renewal, for growth, for new beginnings. Indeed, in verse 4 of Psalm 104, we see he makes winds his messengers. So that speaking of God, like you were saying about the prophets, the young men see visions and the older see dream dreams, we get that, that spirit, that wind is the messenger. So, Cam, I'd like to return to a comment you just made about Egypt because I have open next to me the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, and it has a very interesting additional note on this psalm that references the fact that some biblical scholars claim that this psalm, 104, is modelled on, or perhaps some scholars argue even, even has bits borrowed from, an ancient Egyptian hymn to the sun god. So it says that a 14th century pharaoh, Ikhnaton, was known as the heretic king because he renounced Egypt's many gods and introduced a short-lived form of monotheism by proclaiming Aten, which is the sun god, as the only god of the land. And the SDA Bible commentary here basically provides some reasons why it may not be particularly direct to say this psalm is just a quoting of an Egyptian hymn to the sun god. But I guess it it doesn't need to be that. It It's obvious that there are other examples of these hymns or songs, almost like a song of praise to a god. And what this psalm is doing is picking up, apparently, some of the same kinds of expressions and ways of describing the power of a god. And so I thought that was a really interesting comment from the SDA commentary. And another quote that I'd just like to read from it was right at the start of this psalm, just introducing this psalm. It's great. Psalm 104 is the song of the poet's spontaneous delight in the works of God's creation. In the language and manner of the poet, not of the scientist, the psalm discusses the works of creation, always discerning in creation her creator. The psalm is remarkable for the movement and vividness of the images that crowd into the picture of creation, in this respect, it is probably unsurpassed in literature. How nice is that as a summary of some of the thoughts that we've been exploring just for the last yeah. the last half hour? I, I think it probably is unsurpassed. One that, to my mind, comes close, and you, you talked about memory and memorising in an oral tradition. And one of the few, very few poems that I've memorised is a poem by Jared Manley Hopkins called God's Grandeur. And it goes like this. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. 
The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, O morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with our bright wings. There's a lot in there, isn't there, Ken, that's, that's very similar in theme to Psalm 104. That's spectacular. I think so. Thank you for that, Ken. Really, really nice. And there's an interesting thing here that I'd like to bring up, which is this crossover, the scientist and the poet. You know, the, the SDA commentaries highlighted that Psalm 104 is the, the voice of the poet, not the voice of the scientist. But I wonder how much difference there really is. Last year, of course, was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And in that context of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, I did a bunch of reading and listening to podcasts and audio histories. And before the moon landing, the Apollo 8 mission was the first mission where humans went beyond the gravitational dominance of the Earth. They went around and orbited the moon, and it was a crazy mission. The Apollo 8 mission was by far the most harebrained and risky mission of the Apollo program. Apollo 8 was trying so many new things. And famously, very famously, they gave the first television broadcast live from lunar orbit. The story of it is remarkable because they weren't given any detailed instructions of what to say, and it's, it's insane in the modern era of, you know, media preparation and media savviness and all of the, the training that you might go through, they, in the end, at the suggestion, actually, of a friend of Frank Borman's wife, I think, they couldn't think of anything more appropriate to capture the wonder of their experience of being in orbit around the moon, broadcasting back to Earth on Christmas Eve of all days, and so they read from Genesis chapter 1, and they signed off. Ah, I get quite emotional uh, reading this story. But they signed off. We close with good night, good luck, and a Merry Christmas. God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. And don't you think, mm. don't you think that that is the perspective that the creation story is taking when you hear it here in the author of the Psalm 104? The point of the story is to revel in the goodness of the world we have. It's to revel in the blessings that we are provided with without even acknowledging them so much of the time, and which became obvious, if you like, for our scientific culture, when we had three humans in a tin can traveling around the moon looking back at the Earth. The other iconic story of Apollo 8 was the capturing of the photograph of Earthrise. So I wonder if the distinction here between the scientist and the poet might be actually a little worthless because even scientists, when faced with the raw wonder of the blessings of God revealed through the ability of and the diversity of life that we observe, uh, even scientists have to resort, have to resort to the voice of the poet. There, there is no other voice that can tackle this. Yeah, it, I might speak a little more, Locke, to this distinction between the, the scientist and the poet. And bringing up also in your, 
your comment on it shifting our cultural awareness of, of the earth as an ecosystem, as as something to which we belong, something perhaps that we're responsible for. It's not just a sort of euphoric account of creation, it's a call to action. The Genesis account clearly describes a world that we have a part in. It describes correct relationship with between us and the created world. The imagery used in the Genesis account is very similar to the imagery used of the priests looking after the temple. We are to rule over the world in the sense of we are to be responsible for it, we are to care for it. There's a relationship with each other, a sense of equality between gender, a sense of mutual affection and and looking after the needs of the other. There's, of course, the relationship between ourselves and God. So it's a very functional story, and that seems to be something that the psalmist is really celebrating, that he, when he reads the creation account and he looks out the window, it moves him and it speaks to him in a way that, that has direct impact on his life. I, th- I think there is a distinction between a scientific and a poetic approach, although I agree 100%, Lachlan, that the scientists in the world are some of the most poetic people that there are in in the sense of driven by awe and wonder and amazement at the world they live in. Richard Dawkins himself wrote a book called An Appetite for Wonder. Yeah, but the scientific process is a process of pulling things apart to find out how they work. I think it's Rabbi Sachs who compares this with religion. He says that the role of religion is to put things together to find out what they mean. And I think that I really long for a dialogue in our church around creation that's more reminiscent of Psalm 104 than of trying to break it down. So, for instance, if you told me that creation happened in the month of August and someone else told me it happened in the month of June, I'd say, well, do you know what? Honestly, whether it happens in August or June doesn't affect the way the story speaks to me. It doesn't affect what I think is the truth contained in that story. It doesn't affect... It's incredible impact it has in forming my worldview, in imparting essential truth. It's, it's not so much something that I see, but, but it imparts light with which I can see everything else. That sort of role it plays in my life. If it happened in June, August, it just doesn't bother me. And I, I think that the emphasis we place on nitpicking about exactly when, exactly how, exactly in which order, exactly how long, we lose track of, of what it's about. And it distresses me. I agree, Cam, in that I hear Psalm 104 being sung by a person for whom these images of God's power, of God's creative urge, and of God's sustaining involvement in a creation that he loves and takes joy in, for the author of this psalm, those facts change the way the author interacts with the world. It fundamentally informs the way that this psalmist is describing and seeing and living in the biological world. That's the same conclusion that Frank Borman came to when he decided that, you know, that Genesis 1 was the most suitable thing that he could present from orbit around the moon. We are forced into a position of awe and wonder. And I think that Psalm 104 is the song that, that we end up singing. I wonder if it might be worth wrapping up our discussion with commentary by Paul, not on this psalm, but on the same topic. 
when he stood before the men of Athens at the Areopagus in Acts 17 and verse 24. This was his view. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And I wonder if that was something that perhaps the psalmist had in mind when he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Ken. An ideal note on which to end our discussion. Thanks for joining us on this journey. And we look forward to exploring Psalm 108, as advertised previously, on our next episode coming next week. Thank you.